um, there's actually this phenomenon of this backlash that happens, whereas all the gains that women may have won in terms of gender equality, fighting alongside men or taking up new positions in society, being more in the public sphere, these are now spaces that are shrinking. And so what I'm really interested to find out is when you have that as a context in a post-war situation, and then you have an onslaught of NGOs or the international aid machinery coming in and developing, designing, and implementing different kinds of programs, whether they be recovery programs or livelihood programs or whatever the trend of the day is, how does that interact? And how much do they take into account these shifting gender roles? And how much do they encourage these spaces where gender equality have sort of seeped into to stay open and widen further? Or are they completely ignorant of that? And do they maybe unintentionally uh, encourage things to go back to the way they were before, where perhaps it was more patriarchal and unequal? Right. So just to, just, just a cap, that's a, mm. that's a tremendous project that you're working on. Thank you. And what we've seen is that, first off, you know, as we discussed also in the series, is how you know, the, definition of, the definitions of gender that are socially constructed. So they do Absolutely. change over time. And this, this sort of nostalgia about going back to the way that it was mm. seems to be the theme that we can, we can come back to in a minute. But besides sort of that traditional notion of, of battle and conflict and war, and you know, in, in, in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, there's that sort of celebration of the major conflicts, World mm. War I, World War II. Histories describe how gender roles changed during that time for sure. But since 2000, since the beginning of the millennium, we've had 88 conflicts, uh, at least, that are, that are considered to be major, major international conflicts. And each one of them is going to touch on the theme that you just discussed. Hmm. So what conflicts have you looked at specifically, where you're seeing these gender dynamics change? And, and, and what is it about conflict that makes this change occur? Such a good question. Um, so my specific research looks at Sri Lanka. Um, when I was looking for a case study to focus my research uh, and to pose my research questions, I was really looking for a place where um, I was trying to look in history and see what is a place where I can speak to people where the war is over, certainly, um, but it's not too far back in memory that they wouldn't have still some visceral memories of not just the war, that's always going to be the case, but of what happened after in terms of NGOs coming in and donor programming being implemented. So I really wanted to have that longevity piece, but it was a tricky balance between finding a context where the war hadn't ended so far, so long ago that people may not have remembered or may not have been around, um, but not too shortly in the distant in the in the distant past where some of these programs that are addressing gender equality, which is of course something that is hugely complex and takes many many years, if not generations, to shift. Um, could actually take root. And so that led me to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a country that experienced a 26-year civil war. And when, when did that start? Uh, 1983 is sort of the year that they peg, but this was following different periods in, I would say, the 20th century and, and before. Yeah, you can, you can um, tie the conflicts there back in the colonial period, right? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, with any post-colonial state, I mean, there, was, there were huge power struggles, not just with colonial powers, and, and Sri Lanka is particular in that it had, you know, the Portuguese and the British and, you know, any number of, of colonial superpowers coming in and, and claiming different swaths of the island, this tiny island off the coast of India, um, for, their, for themselves. But then also the internal struggles between the different ethnic um, groups within Sri Lanka. So you have the majority Sinhalese, they are largely Buddhist. 
um, and they claim uh, that they were, many of them claim that they were the original founders and the original inhabitants of the island. Uh, and then you have ethnic Tamils who speak the Tamil language. Um, many of them are Hindu in terms of religion, some of them are Christian, um, and many people uh, mobilize different ethnic ideologies to say that they perhaps came after because they came from Tamil Nadu in India and that they're not the, the rightful inhabitants or, or the native Sri Lankans. And they're the ones that are very much marginalized in Sri Lankan society, is that? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky question, and, and I don't pretend to be a Sri Lankanist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so my, my history is, uh, my Sri Lankan history is not as good as perhaps somebody who's been studying this for 20, 25 years, or perhaps is Sri Lankan. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, essentially because the Tamils are a minority, and I should say they're not the only minority, I'll talk about that in a second, um, they have been, uh, they've gone through different systems of oppression. Um, and, and, so, and this is exactly what led to the Civil War sort of breaking out and coming to a boiling point in 1983 um, and then continuing on. And essentially, the, the narrative, the simplistic narrative is that, you know, the British favored the Tamils. They gave them a lot of, um, you know, public service jobs, which were, of course, highly sought after, um, largely because the Tamils, uh, many of them spoke English and there was a language issue there. Um, and then there, that brewed a lot of resentment, uh, and then there were some riots, some anti-Tamil riots, um, and then that led, um, and then of course the library in Jaffna, which is a huge cultural flashpoint, and it's, it's a, I, I, when I was there, I, I can't express to you the, the symbolism of this, this gorgeous, imposing library that houses, you know, all the ancient manuscripts of, of, of the Tamil people in Sri Lanka, it was actually burned down um, just before, I think it was in 1981 or 1982, just before the, the war started. And that was really something that galvanized, I think, a lot of the, the Tamil opposition uh, to say, we will never be able to fully be Tamil unless we have our own land. And that's what bred not just the, the, the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE, but also many other Tamil uh, secessionist groups and, and armed groups that eventually sort of consolidated or were swallowed up by what we now know as the LTTE. Right. And so that conflict went on for 20 some odd years. There's still tensions today. Mm. But you've had international organizations come in in the post-conflict state. And so when they show up, what kind of projects are they wanting to set up? That's a good question. So right in the aftermath of the war, you had, especially in the north, which is where I, I do my research, in a place called the Vani. So Sri Lanka has a little bit of a peninsula at the top, which is the Jaffna Peninsula. Most people were emptied out of there um, in the last months and, and maybe perhaps year or two of the conflict. Um, and more and more as, as the government army advanced, the, the, SF, the Sri Lankan army advanced and the Tamil Tigers sort of were losing more and more space and people were confined into these areas, eventually known as the cage on the northeastern side. Um, people were, after the, in the immediate aftermath of the war, people were put into uh, IDP camps, essentially, so internally displaced person camps. And some of these people languished there for a year or two, if not more. Um, I know some of these camps only closed in the last four or five years. Um, there was a, a huge one called Manic Farm. Um, these places, by all accounts that I heard, were horrible places. Um, a lot of la huge protection concerns. A lot of people were um, abducted, especially men who were thought to have been associated with the LTTE. Um, uh, horrible stories come, came out of those camps. So you have this landscape immediately post-war. 
um, a lot of donors were coming in, a lot of, a lot of uh, organizations who were kicked out before. I think the ICRC was one of the only ones that was allowed to remain. Even parts of the UN were kicked out because, of course, in the last uh, 100 days or so of the war, there was a major siege against, uh, to, to eradicate the LTTE, which uh, ended up causing a disputed number of civilian casualties, but they're in the probably at least the tens of thousands, if not the hundreds. There, of there's even sort of like there's accusations this is a, like a genocide charge has been absolutely been labeled. So that so whoever's doing that doesn't want international eyes being exactly being around exactly. And the few witnesses who were there, you know, a lot of efforts have been made to discredit them and and such. Um, and these are still very unsettled questions. Um, you have a lot of people who were in the SLA at the time in the Sri Lankan army. Who are now who still occupy positions of power within the government, and that's a huge, flat, a huge tension point for for the Tamil population as well as the Muslim population, which are considered a third minority, which they warrant more attention. But for the purposes of my research, I was doing my, uh, my interviews in a place that was 99% Tamil. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of different kinds of programs coming in in the, in the immediate aftermath, and this is true of really any disaster, or any conflict. You have really what's called uh, recovery. So your main focus is on basic necessities. You want people to be healthy, you want people to be surviving, you want people to have shelter. You're really trying to meet the basic needs. And at the time, in 2009, a lot of these advances around including gender, gender considerations, thinking about LGBTQ people, thinking about trans people, thinking about you know, what, what might women need that men don't need that maybe we should put in these you know, non-food item kits that wasn't as advanced as it is today. We've made mm. huge strides in, in the NGO community and in, and in the aid community, the aid industry. So it was really that for the first two years. So when I started interviewing people, I thought that it would be a good idea to set a timeline and talk to people who received aid between 2009 and today, so a 10-year period. But the more I spoke to them, nobody really received anything beyond sort of basic food packages every month or shelter materials or barbed wire, things like that that were real necessities. Mm -hmm. So I had to start my starting point in terms of the next phase of, let's say, a, a post-conflict or a post-disaster project or program would be called uh, uh, once you have your recovery and then you have your development. So really right. the development starts in about 2011. Right. And that's when you have NGOs coming in with you know, livelihoods programs, trying to help women find um, you know, income generation projects, giving them chickens. Uh, cows, these kinds of things, seeds, the machinery to you know work the land and those kinds of things. Um, there are also some social programs trying to start up like self-help groups where people can have revolving funds, and those had you know varying degrees of success. Um, so, are there this consideration for gender within aid and early stages of development? Is are are the groups actually considering it in the right way? Are you seeing? the needs being met down gender lines, or is it contorted? I know that we've mm. we've also discussed in this series how there are certain risks that come into uh, a project coming into an area that's got really serious issues in misogyny, mm. and uh, you know, a woman uh, or a girl even who's in a vulnerable state in a misogynistic environment mm. is given things like a cow or chickens, and now she's a bit of a target mm. as a result of that. So I guess my question is, do, are these projects getting the gender and development line correct, or is it all over the place? It's uh, a really complex question. I, I think from, my, from what I'm hearing, it's kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost expected to be all over the place, because these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, 
uh, ex-NGO doesn't just come up with a program. It's influenced by their back donor, whether that be you know, Canadian CETA at the time, or DFID, or the European Union. And they also have their own policies and their own ways of conceiving of what is gender and what is what does it mean to do gender mainstreaming? What, is, what does gender equality look like? You know, even in Canada, you know, Rebecca Thiessen has done some great work around this. Under the Harper Conservatives in, in the ten years before the current government, you know, they they equated gender equality with equality between men and women. Yeah. So completely erase anyone who doesn't identify as a man or a woman. Just hard binary, right? Just Jasmine? hard binary. Yeah. So you can imagine anyone applying for funds to the to the government of Canada, to CETA, is going to have to walk that line. Maybe they they sort of blur the lines at the field level where there's less eyes on it, but on paper it's going to look like that. So there, there are a couple of following the line from sort of donor down to you know field level implementation there's a lot of things that can go wrong and a lot of things do go wrong you know gender didn't have as much pickup as it does today you know SDG 5 uh, the feminist international assistance policy those things are like relatively new mm -hmm. and I think now it's become much more mainstream and common to talk about gender people want to talk about it but at that time I think it was not a fringe issue but it was seen as you know some junior female NGO officers work um, and so it was relegated to sort of this fringe add-on, it would be nice to have element. And so I think that's reflected a lot in, in what people are telling me. There's so much talk in any sort of transformative development initiative that ultimately it comes down to a financial tool, a financial mechanism. We're mm. going to try, uh, you know, if it's, if it's like, you know, Jeff Sachs' shock doctrine in the mm. 90s or we move into microcredit, uh, we move into lending circles, if it's, if it's you know... A, northern donors, trilateral cooperation providing uh, agricultural resources, ultimately they usually boil down to some sort of a financial initiative. Mm. And then all the other social complexities are supposed to be added in around that. Is that something you're seeing? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the main critiques of feminist scholarship is basically that you can't take uh, a complex social phenomenon like gender inequality. Especially post-conflict. Especially post-conflict. Because those lines have been blurred during the conflict time yeah no one is no one is comfortable they've essentially been blown up yeah I mean if you pardon the pun yeah I mean they're they're just completely redrawn um, and but and then you have technical solutions being proposed to very uh, complex social long-term issues that are highly entrenched in other things and I think that's the issue is that when when programs try and pre try and prescribe technical solutions which of course Jeff Sachs is famous for, um, to structural problems, you can't possibly expect transformation. You can expect some, maybe individual lives may change, maybe, maybe some individuals have some success with their chicken farm, you know, and I did hear that, um, but you're not going to transform the structural deep-rooted issues that cause inequality in the first place. You're not going to change attitudes, you're not going to change the, the, the structures and the institutions that themselves are patriarchal and oppressive and discriminatory. You're not going to do that if all you're doing is signing checks for microcredit and opening up bank accounts in women's names. That's that's really, really good point. I mean, there's just so often, I mean, some of the cases that we've, we've looked at in this series is that why the financial approach, the, the, the finance solution to whatever the development issue is, usually comes first. People focus on that. And then everything else is just sort of the coloring around it. Mm. You know, take take a color for every one of those sustainable development goals and add <laughs> it around the financial circle, right? But there's also times where you see these alternative development projects come up 
where, say, gender equality is the goal and then financial betterment might come later on. Mm. Uh, Cuba's got a track record of this where they say, we are going to head out and deal with this health issue. We'll worry about the finances later. And there you start to see more transformations on the ground. I mean, mm. uh, with that as well, you see also, um, again, back to Cuba, the approach to, to trying to better incorporate gender issues and LGBTQ issues into their own development model uh, was one that was painfully slow for many years. And it was always seen as sort of a corollary. Mm. We have this major project about socialist development and then someone finally said, well, wait a minute, why don't we take this particular initiative, put LGBT, LGBTQ equality at the heart of it, and then we'll figure out social development around it. Mm. And now what was uh, a country where 30 years ago uh, you actually had camps set up for people who I who identified uh, as non-cis would, would, would be you know put in the camp to, to learn different forms of behavior wow. and, and pretty nasty. And now it's probably one of the most progressive territories in the in the Americas for LGBTQ issues. What do you think was the shift there then? So one of the things that, that I've argued in a paper with uh, with Emily Kirk, we wrote this for the Journal of Public Health, was that in that particular case, that gender issues weren't seen as a broad level vacant human rights issue or, mm. or a, just a development issue. It was actually seen as a public health issue. Mm. And so for Cuba, there's a, there's a lot of critique you could you could bring forward and say, well, what's, what's, why is this a health issue? Are people unhealthy if they don't follow this model? So that's a legitimate critique. But in Cuba, their architecture, their social architecture, their development architecture is very well set up to deal with health issues. Hmm. Whereas, okay, if someone needs uh, gender conformity surgery or if there are uh, certain domestic issues that are breaking out because of you know, poor gender equality, the system's actually able to respond to that on a health need. Hmm. And the message isn't that everyone should respond in a health need because there's, there's some really important critiques against doing that, but rather it was appreciation of what could work in that particular context. And maybe this is something that, that we're seeing at a higher level in post-conflict is that whatever's changed in society from pre to post-conflict is probably not going to have the same sort of support mechanisms, hmm. design, infrastructure, or social participation as a project that is designed from Washington mm. or Vienna or Geneva or London in that way. Absolutely. So I guess one of the things is that um, you've, had, you've had experience working with these organizations, United Nations, Red Cross. There's a lot of students who mm. especially come into international development first, second year, and either they're very keen to work for these organizations themselves or their parents say, what are you gonna do with a development degree? <laughs> and those are just the first two natural answers that come out. You've been there, you are a veteran of this. What advice would you have for our listeners on how to get involved with either group? I get this question asked all the time. Um, I actually meet for coffee with people who are looking to sort of break into development, probably once every couple months, so <laughs> depending you're, on the season. So your coffee card is just full. <laughs> exactly. Good. So if anyone wants to take me for coffee, I'm in Ottawa. Perfect. Um, and I'm very willing to lend my time. Um, I mean, the number one thing that I always recommend is that people learn a language. Yeah. Um, French is probably a good one just in terms of the number of countries that speak it. Spanish is obviously a great one. Arabic, if uh, if, if you're 
that's your interest, you want to work in the Middle East or Arabic-speaking countries, um, but really any language. Portuguese, um, you know. Portuguese, absolutely. The Lusophone world is a very big one. You are correct. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Mozambique, the floods just happened, and they put out the call. I got the call from the Red Cross, you know, to deploy. Um, and normally, in a place where they don't speak English as a first language, or, or rather, English isn't the working language, um, then they would require that you speak that language, whether it be French or Arabic or whatever. But because it was Mozambique and it was it was it's Portuguese speaking, in Canada we just don't have the pool, or at least in in that no. particular roster, I'm not sure that we had the pool, and so they were they were willing to um, take people and and just find translators, um, and that's something that I hadn't seen before. So Portuguese, absolutely. Okay, so when the, you said the call came out, mm. what? What does that look like when you say the call to deploy? What what takes place after that? So I'm on a couple of rosters. I'm on the Canadian Red Cross Emergency uh, Response Unit, or ERU, roster. Um, so I've gone through some specialized training, uh, 10 days or so in uh, the Ontario bush, and then another two weeks in Zimbabwe for some specialized training on psychosocial work. Um, and there you really learn how to... Have you ever seen the show MASH? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great crash course for anyone who wants to work for the Red Cross or in the field in general. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good learning tool, right? Yeah. So watch reruns of MASH, okay? So number one, learn a language. Number two, watch reruns of MASH. Um, so basically it's that. It's like how do you set up a t how do you get to dropped into the middle of a desert mm -hmm. and set up camp in 24 hours and have a functioning running, in the Canadian Red Cross example, or uh, case rather, Surgical hospital. So that is clean water. That is sterilized tools. It's, it's, it's electricity. Hygiene, exactly. It's, wow. It's, it's beds. It's the operating room. It's you know the safe space where I would work. Uh, you know, doing psychosocial programs with kids and adults. You know, to to enhance resiliency and to promote recovery. It would be all that stuff. It'd be security, it, and it all comes in kits. It's very sophisticated. So I'm very fortunate to be a part of this uh, roster. I deployed to Nepal in 2015 after that country's earthquake. Um, it was a devastating one. They're still reeling from that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it was terrible. Um, on the flip side, it was one of the most beautiful places I've been in the world. Right. <laughs> yeah. So not... Uh, it, it, this work definitely comes with its benefits. Um, and also working with people. I, I, think, I think the main thing is, you know, in terms of advice, I would say do your homework. Um, the best resource I can, I can share is reliefweb.net. Reliefweb.net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say go to the job section. You can filter for the different sector that you're interested in. Of course, for me, it would be gender. Maybe for you, it's agriculture or health or whatever sure. it might be. Um, pick a job that you think you might want in two years and look at what they require. And that's kind of it. A master's is, is, is pretty standard these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other sort of toolkits that come with exactly. it, like language. And what about, uh, what about volunteering with the Red Cross yeah. at, at home? I mean, is that something that can lead towards international opportunities? For sure. Volunteering is always a good idea. It, it just brings about so many benefits. You get to get to know your own community. You get to meet new people, develop new skills. I can talk about volunteering till the cows come home. Um, specifically with the Red Cross, they're the largest volunteer organization in the world, which means they have lots of opportunities. So although the process uh, may be rigorous and, and be lengthy... Well, they provide a lot of training. They do. It's they do not indeed. just show up and here no. it is. <laughs> <laughs> they want to know that you're serious yeah. and they want to know if they invest in you that you're going you know, to show up. Wow. Um, so yeah, and, and you can do all sorts of, of great things. They have great stuff on their website, redcross.ca. I don't work for them anymore, but I'm plugging them here today. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's a great idea too. Volunteering abroad, they're... That certainly is a little bit different. Um, not all volunteer sending organizations are the same. We've had a few discussions on this. Uh, we had, uh, <laughs> we, had, sure we, had we had Heather Carroll join us about uh, her 
her time both in Fiji and in Cambodia, where she witnessed some pretty sketchy, uh, you know, for-profit volunteerism organizations that yeah. are worlds away from what what it is that you're talking about here. Yeah. So if you're if you're going to go down that road, I'd say do your homework, speak to people who have done those programs, um, people who have returned, and have some some perspective. But for sure, volunteering is always a great idea. And then also. Um, you, you know, traveling on its own is also really great. Um, I, I, I like to say, like, the number of people I know who have worked in development got there through a path that they themselves forged, whether or not it was through their own grit and strength or whether it was complete happenstance and landed in the right place at the right time. 90% of the time it was yeah. that. You know, but there is no one clear-cut path. But there is that strategy you just said by looking at things like Relief Web and you see what are the actual skills that are being posted mm. on jobs today that in two years people could actually take those steps to try to achieve those qualifications. I think that's really, really wise. And that might involve having to go abroad. It might might involve being, you know, uh, exposed to volunteer work in a post-conflict zone, mm. something like that. Yeah, it might, it might inc- uh, require doing some online courses in project management, or it might do require, you know, doing like a course at a community college in, in your city. Yeah, it could be a whole bunch of things, but at least it gives you a bit of a trajectory. And it makes you think as well, you know, don't just read the requirements, also read the job description and see, could I see myself doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes it'll say lots of travel or, you know, uh, difficult conditions. You know, think about whether that's that's for you. It, it is something to really, to really hone in on um, because the first time you go abroad and you are in that very isolated, possibly... Uh, with translation issues into other languages, the the sense of sort of self care uh, oh. is is a real challenge for a lot of people. Yeah, and I'll tell you a secret. Um, it's not a secret. It's actually coming out in a lot of journal articles now um, and reports. Is that as difficult as the work is, and as difficult as it is to see people on their worst days and in the the worst months of their lives, particularly if you're in a disaster, a post disaster, a post conflict, or a conflict. Um, I would say that the biggest stress working in the NGO sector in the field is management, colleagues, and the structures that are imposed. Yeah. It very often comes from the bureaucracies and the structures. It very rarely comes from the people for whom you're working and with whom you're working. Right. Um, and to have resilience to, or to have those resiliency skills to be able to unplug, even if you're in the middle of nowhere and there's no one else that you can talk to, you know, being able to tune out, being able to stay healthy, both physically and mentally. I mean, yeah, those 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 are gold. Yeah, James Urbinski, Paul Farmer, they, they wrote about that in their their testimonies about yes. how in their work they, there wasn't that sense or ability to just take a moment for yourself because you need to. You need to recharge. You need to mm-hmm. you need to be grounded. You still have family connections mm. back home that that could be really compromised or damaged. Uh, through this experience because they may not understand what it is you're going through. They say put your mask on first for a reason. Well done. Jessica Kadeski, we are here in Vancouver and I think it is high time to go and find the falafels. <laughs> there are some really good spots down on, uh, on 4th Avenue and uh, that's definitely where we should be, uh, be on our way now. Thank you very much for joining us for this expert analysis podcast on GDP. My pleasure. All right, we'll see you next time.